Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 1030 a.m. in the Boise Friends Church Gymnasium, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption. The early 1900s, there was a business called the Dossler Shoemaking Company in a town called Herzogenarok. I don't, I don't know German, um, but it was in Germany. And these two brothers owned a shoe company, and they made shoes. And then after being co-opted into um, German war production during World War II, after the war, these two brothers were so angry with each other that they decided that they could not work together anymore. And that's how we got Puma and Adidas. It's two brothers who started competing shoe companies because they couldn't handle being together anymore. Now, I don't know if you've worn Puma shoes or Adidas shoes. They're very similar. <laughs> I've, I've worn both of them playing soccer most of my life, and I can tell you that they are cut from the same cloth. Very, very similar. But being close didn't keep them together. Being close drove them apart. It's actually a similar story to another set of German companies. The first Aldi grocery store, Albrecht Discount, he opened in Germany in the early 1900s. And the owner's two sons took over after World War II. They expanded the business, hundreds of locations in Germany. But in 1960, the two brothers argued and decided to split the company into two separate identities, Aldi North and Aldi South. Aldi North took the Aldi locations in northern Germany and much of Europe, while Aldi South took those in southern Germany and the remainder of the European region. And one of them bought Trader Joe's, and that's why we have Trader Joe's and Aldi in America. Because these two brothers, I don't know if you've been to an Aldi, I don't know if you've been to Trader Joe's, once again, very similar offerings, almost identical in experience. But because these brothers couldn't stay together, they had to separate. Cain and Abel, Abraham and Lot, Joseph and his brothers, Solomon's sons, the Tower of Babel. Humans are great at saying, this isn't working. I think we should split up. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. Wouldn't it be easier if we just did our own thing separately so that we don't have the conflict of being together in the same place, doing the same thing? This is human nature. It's what we've done from the very beginning. But it's also fundamentally antithetical to the way of God. The way of God, for those of us who are part of the kingdom, is supposed to look like Unity. It's supposed to look like oneness. 
But it's continued on. Day in and day out, people are separating, finding their own way to go. I don't know, I, I even do this with my own kids. Like, if they're in the same room, they're fighting. And so I tell them they cannot be in the same room so that I don't have to hear them arguing. Because it's easier for me. That's what, that's what Tower of Babel was. God's like, I can't do this. This is too much. And he's just like, I'm just going to separate you guys out until you can work together. You're just going to have to go to your own villages. Well, this brings us to the real question, which is, sometimes you ever look around at an organization, a group of friends, a church, and you wonder, why are we actually together? There is this pull to create confederacies, organizations. <laughs> That's the first week the youth is in that room, so we're going to find out just how loud they are. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. No, just kidding. <laughs> My wife's in there. Uh, anyways. Uh, why do, we, why do we feel this need to get together and to be together when there's all of this constant conflict when we are together so we fall apart? That's the nature of history. You look at nations that came together and nations that fell apart. Organizations that came together, organizations that fell apart. Marriages that came together, marriages that fell apart. What makes us a community? Who decides who's in and who decides who's out of our community? Some of you probably saw in the Facebook group, I shared with you a set of, of uh, draft bylaws for our community because we don't have any yet. And we're, we're trying to come up with some formal ways of talking about who we are and what we do as a community. And we're trying to figure out how do we decide, like, is there something you could do that would make us kick you out of here? And is there some reason why people should come here? How do, how do we determine who's in and who's out? Sometimes it can just feel so arbitrary. There's something like 35,000 independent churches and denominations in the world. 35,000. There's only 300,000 churches in America, and there's 35,000 denominations. Think about the math there, okay? Instead of a top-down hierarchy of Catholicism, we have hundreds and thousands of people who decided, I'd rather be my own pope with complete control over the beliefs and the values, there's an ESPN alert, <laughs> of, of their organizations. We've worked so hard to be independent that we've achieved basically complete autonomy from one another, from any sort of outside authority. Churches disagree, and they split, and they create something new, and they do it in opposition to what they came from to justify their existence in comparison to those around them. Uh, so I, I lead a couple of organizations that focus on church planting, and so I see a lot of church plants try to create marketing materials about their community to try to get people to join. And they, the, the basic idea is you don't want to be like those other churches. You, do, you, they, they don't, <laughs> you want real community with real people, not like those other churches that have fake community with fake people. This isn't stuffy religion like the stuffy religion over there. There aren't any, you'll see this in pitch decks for church plants where they'll say, there just aren't any, cheap, there aren't any churches that teach the gospel anymore. They'll actually say that in their, in their materials. They'll say, there aren't any Bible-believing churches in that area of the city. They'll say, well, they need a church like ours since they don't have one yet, just like us. They need a unique expression of the church. But these all betray these fundamental beliefs 
that are not in alignment with the way of Jesus. Fundamentally, these church planters, and many of us believe that we and our way is the solution. That we and we alone have the answers to the ailing world. That we, after 2,000 years, we finally got this Jesus thing right. Come follow me for more tips and tricks on the way of Jesus. That we have restored the church to its proper place as a community. Do you see a pattern? All of these are arrogant beliefs that we are the only ones who get it right, that do it the right way. And us, you, me, the people in this room, we're not immune to this kind of thinking. When we see something else out in the heart of the world, we have to justify why we don't want to belong to that thing. We want to belong to this thing. And so we say, well, I'm glad I'm a part of Redemption Hill because it X, whatever that thing that you say in your head is. And we are a weird, funny, little different kind of community here. We have different approach in our values and our ministries and our teaching and our language. But that doesn't mean that we're doing it right in the face of decades and millennia of history. I don't know if you spent some time paying attention to the world this week, but a lot of people seem to think that their approach to justice and our Supreme Court are the only way to approach questions of justice in our society. Arrogance is at the center of all of our truth claims. A lot of heat and not much light. Here's a little sample of the these are real posts that I saw on social media this week. Unfriend me now if you dot dot dot. F you if you dot dot dot. I'm ecstatic that the Supreme Court finally did what I wanted it to do. We use arrogance as like a protective tool to not engage with the ideas and the people who challenge us. Because if we treat the other side like humans, we have to deal with their ideas and problems and questions. And if they aren't important enough for me to engage with, then I can treat them like idiots and just trash them and their values and their choices because when I'm distant from them, they're not really human anymore. They're just ideas of people over there. We're not the first generation to deal with this. From the very beginning, the church had to figure out Who's in? Who's out? What are we doing here? If you're looking for an exclusive club of people who look like you and have the same values, today is going to hurt, okay? So I just want you to be ready, okay? If you're looking for a comfortable community where only people who look like you belong, just take a deep breath. It's going to be hard. <laughs> All right. Je Jesus' very final prayer, the one that he gave before he ascended to heaven was this. He prayed that we would be one, as he and the Father are one. John chapter 17, if you got your Bibles, verses 20 through 23, I think we've got it. There it is. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. 
I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. I love that he uses the word one over and over again because it's one of the most primal ideas of humanity. The word one is one of the ten words that you find in every language on the planet and they almost always have like a, a similar vowel sound. This is like a very, this is what all humans hear and see the word one and they think about a single object. It's an idea that is vital to who we are as humans that got built into our DNA and our, and our, and our words is that we are meant to be one. And not, not to get too metaphysical with you, but this is the good news of the gospel, that we are to be made one with the God who made all things. That we are to be unified into his being as a part of his family via this spirit-filled unity. We talked about in our Ephesians, we, in our Ephesians series this winter, we talked about like what does it look like to be unified and to be one people because we are in Christ. Jesus doesn't pray for them to be arrogant, know-it-all jerks. He knew that they would do that anyways. He didn't pray for them to be smug sons of guns. He didn't pray for them to split so that they would have ideological purity. He didn't pray for them to split so that the church was free of heresy. He didn't pray for them to split so that they would only be true Christians in their midst. He prayed for unity of essence, of being, that they would know that they are fundamentally one. Because whether we act like it or not, whether we pretend like we're unified or not, in reality there is one holy, universal church of all those in all of history who have been set apart and joined in with God's family. That's it. There is only one. And he prayed that we would be united. So the question is, how do we do that? Today we're going to be talking about one of our key values, which is the fundamental creed or beliefs that we have as Redemption Hill and as um, our network of microchurches. We're going to be talking about the Apostles' Creed. So first, we need unity with God because we don't get unity by liking each other or agreeing with each other. That's called a confederation. That's not a unified person. A confederation is a group of people who gather around because they have something in common that they want to use as a platform for unification. That's not what we're doing because those are thin. Confederations break up very easily over um, definitions of words, over ways that they're applied. And so like a thin kind of unity is, hey, we believe the same things, therefore we're unified. That's not the kind of unity that brings us Together, The unity that we have is in Christ through union with Christ. And so you and I belong in a unified body of Christ because we belong to Christ, not because we belong to one another. Okay? But this is, like in our day and age, what we're constantly doing is asking, who's really on my team? And we're looking around and trying to find these markers so that I know who's with me and who's against me, who my enemy is and who's on my team. But the real question is, am I on God's team? 
Instead of asking, is God on our team? Or are you on God's team? My question is, am I? Do I belong to God? And if I belong to God, then everybody who belongs to God, I'm unified with them. Now, we've talked about this before, but we, we, uh, in the past, theologically, we've talked about um, being a centered set. Do we have a picture of that? A centered set, so on the, or, or sorry, a bounded set. On the left side, it's a bounded set. This is the way that the Reformation and the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church have created what it means to, be, to belong to God's kingdom. And um, in some ways, in some ways, there are some biblical ways to talk about it. But I think that um, from a sociological standpoint, it doesn't help us. So when we talk about a bounded set, it's that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw a line or a fence around who belongs inside and who belongs outside. It's going to have boundary markers. And so we're going to say, if you believe these things, and if you do these things, and if you act in this way, then you belong inside. It doesn't matter where you're at. You can be really close to the edge or really in the center. As long as you're inside and you don't trespass our group's fence, then you get to stay inside. But as soon as you say, um, you know, I, there's lots of examples, but I, I don't want to single one, one thing out. Um, you know, like, like, like let's say you're a, hey, listen, we only believe that the King James Bible is the only Bible there is and that God wrote it in King James English just for us so that we would know his words. Like there's, that's not a joke. That's literally what people think. Um, but they would say, as soon as you read the NIV, you've trespassed. Now you're outside the circle, and because you're a liberal and you don't care about what God really wants, and you don't really read his real Bible, you don't belong to the family anymore. And so we need to get you back into the family and get you to believe that one thing that you've left out. The Catholic Church has a very, a very clear set of ways that you can belong, and it comes around the communion table, and as long as you're in good standing with the church, you can enter into communion, and they're going to bind you to the church by their authority to say that you belong to God's people because you belong to the Catholic Church. It's not because you belong to Christ, it's because you belong to them. You see, there's a very clear set, bounded set. But when we talk about a centered set, it's much more a question of your unity with Christ draws you to one another. Rather than asking, what can I get away with? You're asking, how can I move in closer? Because the closer I move with Christ, the more unified I am with people who are moving towards Him. The people who are moving away from Him, they're choosing to not be engaged with Christ and not be united with Christ, and so they don't feel close to the center. These are different ways of thinking, and there are aspects of both in the Bible, but when we're talking about who we are as a community, the question isn't, have I, have I checked all the boxes to be inside? Because... What we see in Matthew 25 is that there's a lot of people who think that they check the boxes and they do it so that they can be inside the circle, but they don't actually belong to God because they're not his people. Because they've done the things without being in relationship with him, without being united to him. And so what we want to do is have a unity of spirit where the same spirit has been inside of us, and so we seek unity by seeking union with Christ. So it's a unity that's derived from mutual family. Um, we are all together because you have said, I'm going to have a relationship with this community. And 
primarily you've said, I want to have a relationship with Jesus in this place, and so we have joined together in this community. But our unity is derived from our connection with Christ, and He's the center of it, not my connection with you. You can still belong to Redemption Hill and to the people of God and not like me. There's a lot of people who do. You've got to be honest. They don't like me, but they still belong to Jesus' family. That's okay. You can even belong to our little community and not like some of the stuff that I do. That's just fine. You don't even have to agree with me on everything that I think or say or do, even though I'm one of the elders of this community. Bob doesn't agree with me, and it makes me mad all the time. It's like, come on, man, do what I say and what I want right now. And he, he doesn't listen. None of you really do, and that's okay. That's just fine. That's the kind of community that we want is because you're not here because of me. You're here because we're trying to connect with the Father. Our unity is also derived from mission and direction, not alignment and method. We're going and doing the same thing. We have the same mission, which is to see God's name glorified and his kingdom come to life in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in our community. It's going to look different in different places. You're going to have a different, distinct role in God's mission. And it's okay if we can still be family and you look more like a prayer warrior and I look more like an activist. You look more like somebody who loves and cares for orphans and widows. And maybe you are great at connecting with kids. Like it's, it can look different, it can feel different, it can have lots of different expressions of the kingdom, but we're unified by the mission, the direction of our king. I like to think of um, something like warfare, because when you, when you look at warfare, there will be multiple divisions with multiple missions and multiple objectives that may or may not be connected to one another, but they have a shared overall mission, which is the directive of the leader. And in this case, the directive is not from me, it's from our king, and we take assignments from him both individually and as a community, and we do what he's called us to. That's what unites us, is our shared mission. And I can cheer you on at the thing that you're called to do without feeling like I have to do it too, and I can cheer you on in the thing that you've been called to do without even agreeing in the way you're doing it. It's probably different than the way I would do it. How you guys do made for this camp looks different than the way I do made for this camp. I found that out this week because I wasn't able to be there for two of the days. But you know what? God was at work, and he was taking you and doing what he wanted to do with you. And so it's our connection with the Father and listening to his Holy Spirit and then being shaped by the there's, there's going to be natural conflict between us because there's going to be different ways that we see it, and that's okay. We want to embrace that and use that as a way to sharpen and to, to clarify the way of Jesus. Because a lot of stuff is preference, and a lot of stuff is essential, and a lot of stuff is secondary. And it's sorting out which of which we need to, we need to do. Um, we have unity from our values rather than how we live them out. So instead of saying that we have a very, um, have you ever been to a church where they all wear the same clothes? There's like weird churches where you all have to wear like a prairie dress and like black pants and suits and a tie. Have you ever been to a church like that? Weird. It's weird. I don't get it. I like t-shirts. I like sandals. I don't get it. But they, they have feel this very deep sense that the way that they live out the value of modesty should be the same across their community. So they have strongly held values about that thing. 
But in our community, we're going to have values that are built on Christ, and then we're going to trust that in community, we're going to figure out how to live those out and practice them in a way that's authentic and contextual to where God's called us to. So it doesn't have to look the same, but we're going to have the same values, not because we've decided on the values, but because we've received the values from the King and from the Bible. Our unity is going to be around grace rather than obedience. If our unity is lockstep, command and control, we're unified because you do what I say. That's a type of unity. Our military and many of our institutions use obedience and command and control as a way to move forward and make things happen. But that's not the way that things happen in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, there's autonomy and there's grace where we say, you're not doing it right. And I may not actually be responsible for making you do it right. Isn't that weird? Like, have you ever seen that meme where it's like, hold on, honey, I'll be in bed in a while. Somebody's wrong on the internet. And they're, you know, typing. <laughs> we, have, we have all taken responsibility for things that were never meant to be ours. Because we think that everybody has to think and speak and act just like us. But in God's kingdom, he's the king. He's the authority. He's in charge. And our job is to enter in and say, what does it look like for us to be Jesus' people, starting with me and my family? And then, in community, when there's differing opinions, we have deep conversations in love and grace for one another. Not demanding adherence, but inviting one another to consider, is this the way of Jesus? Are we doing what he wants us to? And we have unity through humility rather than through authority. This sounds weird, because it, like normally we get unity through authority. I give clear vision, I give clear expectations, and then I hold you accountable to those expectations. If you've ever worked in a business, that's the way every business has to work in the world. But our unity comes through humility. We're one because I don't take a position of authority over you to demand that you become like Jesus. Because Jesus didn't take authority and demand that people follow in his way. Jesus, the ultimate authority over all things, when he came to earth, he invited people and challenged people, but he did not coerce people. He did not shame people to do and live the way he wanted them to. This is the way of the kingdom, is the way of humility, to say that even though I have authority from the king of kings to bring about his kingdom in the world, the way that I do that is through the way of service, the way of sacrifice, and the way of making myself low rather than making myself high through authority. It's different. It looks so different than the world around us. Secondly, we have unity with the historic church. If all of Jesus' followers in all time would disagree with you about your interpretation, you're probably wrong. Okay? If you have some novel way of understanding God that's never been said before, um, you're probably a cult leader. Like, that's the way those things start. Because somebody thinks that they see something that nobody else is seeing. It's called Gnosticism. It's special knowledge that only comes from this mystical way of looking at it and taking these disparate ideas and bringing them together. This, the way that we center ourselves is by taking communion, not just with one another, but every time we enter into communion, we're entering into communion with all those who came before and all those who will come after us. We're humbling ourselves and saying that we are but an instant. We are not the authority over all of the church. 
And so we look to the past, and we are allowed to critique the past, okay? We're allowed to look back and say, you know what? Luther was deeply wrong about more things than you can imagine, particularly around his anti-Semitism, and that Nazism was built out of Luther, okay? That's true. But also, he told us something that we needed to recapture about the life of the church in the priesthood of all believers. He pointed us back to Galatians and said that faith is the way that we're justified before God. Okay, so we can look back and we can critique in light of the scripture, the history that comes before us, but we also must receive from history and say, how does it speak against us? How does in history they speak forward and say, you're not being faithful to the way of Jesus like we prophetically lived as a community? You look at, you look at a community like the Moravians who said, we're going to skew wealth, we're going to live in community, and we're going to send out missionaries to all the world. That should be a prophetic witness to us about what it means to be God's people. So we let the historic church speak forward to us. If no one else recognizes your authority, if you can't get along with anybody else, uh, there's some church planners who are like, well, my last church was like really messed up, and so I decided I'm going to start my own. And so I don't have anybody to send me. I'm just starting my own church. And here's the thing. If you can't get anybody else to send you, to give you money, to ordain you, you are a cult, not a church. Because it's about you creating your own expression of Jesus' followers. We, our authority is derived from the apostolic authority that came from Christ through his apostles. It comes on by the laying on of hands, by the elders who came before us, who say you are anointed and gifted in the way of God, and we're calling you in to lead a community of followers of Jesus. I had an ordination. I can point you to 12 men who spent a year and a half listening to me and to making me write 50 pages of theology and questioning me, and they, they ordained and said, this man has been called and equipped as a leader in the church, and we're sending him out. That's the way the authority works, is the church as a whole says this person is being an elder. They're being called by God. We can disagree on interpretation. We can disagree on the way that we live out faith. But we don't disagree on the authority. The authority doesn't come from me as the interpreter, me as the leader. The authority comes from the Word of God. And the authority comes from Jesus, not my position in the church, okay? So if anything I say is contrary to Jesus or to Scripture, I'm wrong, all right? I'm wrong. Not Scripture, not Jesus. And you, as my people, have the right and responsibility to call me out. And some of you do, and I thank you for those emails on Mondays. They're great. <laughs> Primarily my dad and Andy, but it's great. <laughs> Just one thing. No, <laughs> after church. Anyways. Uh, lastly, our unity comes... Like, it's crazy to me, but there is one set of ecumenical beliefs... Ecumenical means it's widely accepted by the whole church, east and west, across the whole world, all of history. There's one creed that has been given to us. It was found first in the second century. Hippolytus, who was probably discipled by Paul and then had 
had like authority from John. So we're talking like literally second generation followers of Jesus. In the second century, they wrote down what we call the Apostles' Creed, and it was used in baptism and in confirmation over the course of almost 2,000 years with tiny, very small clarifications that uh, have an interesting history to themselves. But we have this, this creed that we use as a center of our faith, and we use it to say this is the very basics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, this, this is not the only thing that we believe, but this is a distillation of what we believe, and we're going to walk through it together. Is that there? Yeah, there we go. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. It's real simple. This is the very first theological principle. I am not God. There is a God. He is over me. He is over all things, and I am not him. It's the fundamental starting point of every belief. Secondly, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, all of these things are well attested in Scripture and not challenged by any follower of Jesus across time. He was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day, he rose again. This is the story of our belonging to God's family all in one sense. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Now, Catholic just means universal, not Roman Catholic. The Holy, singular, unified body of Christ believers. The communion of saints across time and space. The forgiveness of sins, because this is where our hope is. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. If this is true of you and of me, you belong to God's family, but this is just the bare minimum. If you can affirm these biblical ideas without reservation, you know the things that you need to be a follower of Jesus, but saying these things does not make you a follower of Jesus. This is not a magic incantation. If you say these things, it doesn't trick you into being a Jesus follower, okay? You need to know these things, but saying these things does not make you a follower of Jesus. Primarily, being a follower of Jesus comes from making him the Lord over your life. Saying, Jesus, I don't just believe that you're my king. I just don't believe that you're the creator. I don't believe that you're the Lord, but you are Lord over my life and my decisions. That's how you belong. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is lordship, him being king over your life. Secondly, is discipleship. If you're not submitted in, in community to learning the way of Jesus, you cannot belong to his kingdom without becoming like Jesus. It requires community. You need discipleship. And lastly, once you belong, once you have made Jesus Lord, you now are inexplicably tied with these knuckleheads. For all of history. You cannot get away. You can't be a follower of Jesus and not belong to one another. Which is kind of crappy because some of you are difficult to have in our family. What Jesus said to make sure that we um, didn't think that we'd get it right. He, he tells a story. He said the kingdom of God is like this wheat field 
in this wheat field at night, the enemy, your enemy comes along and he sows seeds of weeds among them. And when you don't even realize they're there until they grow up. And then once they grow up, you look around and you go, oh my gosh, look at my field, it's full of these weeds. But the problem is you can't remove the weeds without destroying the wheat. And so you have to wait till the end. Once you've threshed all of your wheat and you've pulled all the seeds, and then the weeds themselves will be burned up with the chaff. The church, the body of Christ is full of weeds, right? Can I get an amen? <laughs> it's full of weeds. It's full of a bunch of people who don't really belong to God's kingdom, but we don't get to decide who's in and out. Only God does that. And so we're going to be united with Christ, and we're also going to be stuck with each other until that last day when the weeds and the chaff will be burned away. This is kind of terrifying and freeing in some ways, right? You don't have to be the police anymore. You don't have to go on Facebook and tell people that they don't belong to God's family because they don't believe the same thing you do about abortion. Isn't that freeing? It's not your job to make sure who's in and who's out. There's one judge. He's going to come to judge, but he hasn't yet. And so right now, our job is to be God's people and let him do the judging. In fact, we might be lost ourselves. And so instead of turning that outward, we need to turn it inward. And lastly, we also have this understanding, that those who are not a part of God's kingdom, they are not our enemies. Let me say that again. Those who are not a part of God's kingdom are not our enemies. They're our family members who have been lost to the darkness. There is no one out there, no human being who is your enemy. The powers of darkness are trying to tear apart God's family by holding them into the darkness of this world, by using the systems of this world to corrupt them and to ruin them. Our job is not to convince them and our job is not to destroy them. Our job is to transform them and convert them and pray for them and walk along with them. And even until that last day when they choose destruction, gently and humbly we walk with them because we know that God's desire is for them to be united with him. So how do, we, how do we foster unity together? We stop, we stop doing all the things that separate us. We stop thinking in sound bites. We stop communicating with memes and funny things that are mean to other people. We start praying for those who disagree with us. We pray for their blessing. We pray for their families. We pray that we would understand what drives them, even though it's so different than us. We need to be okay with things looking different. When you walk around and things look out of place and you need to fix them, that's your problem, not the thing's problem. All right? All of that need you have to control the world around you is about you, not about the brokenness of this world. Be responsible for you. If it's not your monkey, if it's not your zoo, quit putting on the caretaker's outfit and going out there. Because Imagine you're at the Boise Zoo and you see a monkey out. Do you take it on yourself to take care of that monkey? To make sure that it gets back in its cage? That's a terrible decision. 
do not do that. But in our world, we look around and we see wrong things, and what do we do? We go, there's a monkey out. Must be my job. You know, put, put your gloves on, put your, you know, uni, uni suit on, and you go get the monkey. It's not your monkey. It's not your zoo. Chill out, okay? We need to stop being ashamed for how others portray Christ. Like we look around at the really broken parts of the body of Christ and we feel ashamed about how they're living out their faith. Instead of going, look at me and look at all the ways that I don't live out my faith and all the ways that I don't love and care for foreigners and widows and orphans. And we look at the world and we say, look at all the brokenness in them instead of me. We need to be clear about the things that are clear and have grace for secondary issues. Um, It's real easy. Most things are not real clear. But you are laser sure about how God wants you to deal with those things. The only things that we're really clear about are the things that are really clear in the Bible, and most of those show up in the Apostles' Creed. So if it's outside of the Apostles' Creed, it's probably secondary. I know that's hard to hear, but almost everything in the Bible is not essential or clear. There's very few things that are both essential and clear, and we need to grab hold of those with the ferocity of a thousand angels, and we need to let go of everything else that we see as secondary and unclear. I mean, there are things that we should be really clear about. Racism? It's clear. That's wrong. Should we pursue justice for the weak and the vulnerable? Yes, that's clear, and that's the right thing to do. The Christian personal sexual ethic is really clear. It's right there. Am I responsible for how the world lives that out? No. The nature of God, Jesus, resurrection, salvation, it's really clear stuff. But politics and public policy about how we're supposed to adjudicate those things in the world, not clear. Not clear. Not your responsibility to make sure that the world thinks exactly the way you do about everything. I'm speaking myself here. (laughs) Almost always those things are unclear. There's levels of abstraction and distance and um, almost no one is in charge. Like, we, we just had a bunch of, like, Pretty, um, pretty, sh- pretty big Supreme Court decisions. And when you look at all of them, they have 18 layers of distance from me to them, the people who are deciding those things. I'm one of 350 million Americans, and my vote is in a state that will always look the same way, and I have almost no say over what happens, but I feel really deeply about the decisions that come out. Worry about things you have control over. Worry about the things that are in front of you. And know that even when we have competing visions of what is good and how to get there, it doesn't mean that we are always right. We're actually done. Look at that. I'm going to ignore that part and we're just going to finish up. All right. Unity comes from humility, unity comes from unity and union with Christ, and unity comes from keeping the majors the majors, keeping the minors the minors. Would you stand with me? First, we're going to pray together. We're going to pray that God would give us humility 
and that God would give us a love for those he's united to us in the family of God. Okay, so close your eyes. I want you to pray for your enemy. I want you to pray for the person you disagree with the most who also calls themselves a Christian. You got that person in your head? Okay, pray that God would bless them. Pray for their families, that they would be safe, that God would care for them. I want you to think about a church or an expression of faith that you just really hate and you don't like the way that they do church and there's something off about them and something that's really worrisome to you about how they do church and I want you to pray God's blessing over their community of faith. Lord God, unite us with you in Christ through the power of your Spirit's presence to justify us and to make us righteous before you. Unite us as one in your presence. Unite us with everyone who's gone before us, even those who, who understood and longed for your kingdom before Christ came, and all those who will come in the kingdom age and beyond. Lord God, unite us as one people. Give us humility to walk in your steps and not need to control and to coerce and to um, make this world the way we want it to be. And Lord God, may we be united with the historic church as we recite the Apostles' Creed and as we take, ta as we take communion at the table. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection, where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at Redemption Boise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.